Hi, folks. Just want to let you know right at the top that we did have a lot to say about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. So this is actually going to be the first of two parts on the film. Uh, both parts are dropping simultaneously, so part two should be ready in your feed whenever you're done with this one. Uh, anyway, hope you enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we're going to be wrapping up our discussion on censored films with the 1960 Alfred Hitchcock movie, Psycho. Janet Leigh stars as Marion Crane, a woman who is having an illicit affair with divorcee Sam Loomis. The two cannot get married because of Sam's alimony and various debts, so they occasionally meet at a cheap motel when he is in town. Janet lives in Phoenix, Sam lives in Fairvale, California. After one of these rendezvous, Marion returns to her job as a secretary to a real estate agent. A wealthy client comes in and insists on paying cash, handing $40,000 to Marion, which her boss tells her to deposit in the bank. Impulsively, Marion steals the cash and begins driving to Fairvale, planning to use the money to pay Sam's debts so the two can marry. After a stressful drive, including a run-in with a cop, Marion stops at the Bates Motel for the night. Norman Bates, the motel manager, invites Marion to dine with him, and the two eat and talk in the office parlor. Norman tells Marion about his lonely life running the motel, his only real company being his mother, who lives with him in the house overlooking the motel. Marion, seeing Norman in a prison of his own making, decides to return to Phoenix in the morning and give back the money she stole. She returns to her room and takes a shower, a silhouette, Norman's mother, enters the bathroom and stabs Marion to death. Norman finds the body and begins cleaning up the crime scene to protect his mother, placing Marion's body in her car and sinking it in the swamp behind the motel. Milton Arbogast, a private detective hired by the real estate agent to retrieve the money, questions both Sam Loomis and Lila Crane, Marion's sister, who know nothing of her whereabouts. Arbogast promises to keep them informed and follows Marion's trail to the Bates Motel. He speaks to Norman, who is somewhat cooperative, but refuses to allow an interview with his mother. Arbogast goes to the house anyway and is stabbed to death by a knife-wielding woman. Sam and Lila, concerned about Arbogast's long disappearance at the Bates Motel, consult the local sheriff. He brushes them off, saying the private eye likely absconded with the money himself. The pair go to the motel to investigate for themselves. Lila sneaks into the house and finds the decaying body of Mrs. Bates. She is attacked by Norman, who is dressed like his mother and wielding a knife, but is saved by Sam. A psychiatrist who examines Norman at the police station reveals that he was a murderer all along, having developed a split personality after murdering his mother and her lover ten years before. 
So, Monica, uh, I know this is normally the section where we kind of ask each other what our general impressions were of the film, but since this is arguably the most famous film ever made, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about kind of your relationship with this film. So, like, if you heard about it when you were a kid, when you would have first seen it, that kind of thing. So the first time that I remember hearing about it or knowing about it was when the 1998 remake came out. So I was 12 years old at the time, and I remember seeing a billboard for the remake. And I was so... um, Because I guess I've always been attracted to horror and slasher movies, and I was so interested. I never saw the remake. I haven't heard good things about it. But I did eventually see... The original, and the funny thing is I can't even remember when I first saw it. And it was weird rewatching it because the only thing I really remembered from my viewing was the corpse of the mother when Lila turns her around. Um, (laughs) That always stuck in my head. Everything else I had completely forgotten. But aside from that, I think like a lot of people, I know the music. And I think for ages, I didn't realize that that music was from, like, I didn't know where that music was from. But they they use that kind of dun, 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 like in so many different contexts, right? In so much parody. It's it's just kind of ubiquitous. And that's probably where I think a lot of people get the most exposure to something that came out of this movie we've uh we've talked on the podcast before about films that um that kind of seep into the cultural subconscious but i think uh no film we've covered before this has hit this level like you said the you know basically every sitcom ever made has had a parody of this uh the simpsons did it i'm sure south park everyone 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 has referenced this film so I wonder what you had said that you didn't really remember too much of it except for the the semi-preserved body of uh, the elder Mrs. Bates. Uh, wh- what was your impression of it this go-around? I enjoyed it, um, but I wasn't... I think I told you I was getting ready to get the cat and sit down with the cat so I can... Because I'm such a chicken with horror movies and I need somebody <laughs> to kind of lean on. <laughs> but um, uh, I I was not really scared, and I think maybe this this movie more the because I think it is legitimately scary when you go in and watch it and you don't know anything about it. Um, but I think maybe this movie more than some other horror movies. Once you already know what's going to happen, the impact of the scare scenes is a lot less. Right, which kind of um is, uh, I guess, a frustrating thing about about films like this is that who, at this point, who isn't really familiar with kind of the broad strokes plot elements of this film? Everyone knows the shower scene, right? So even if you haven't seen the film before, you're surely expecting it. I also can't remember when I first watched this movie. I think I know I saw it when I was a kid at some point in elementary school because it was on it was on Turner Classic and I think um mom told me to like oh you should you know we should stop here this is a good one and I saw it again in high school and I think this is my first time since then but I I think it like you said like the the mu- it, almost more than the film itself the music sting lives on so we'll be uh getting back into that a little bit more later and specifically how the music functions in this film 
Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about the director, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, who similarly almost needs uh, no introduction. Probably the most famous film director, uh, perhaps next to Steven Spielberg. He's uh, one of the few directors that like everyone, everyone, everyone knows her name. He had a very, very long career. He got his start in silent films, uh, moved into talkies, and then his uh, later films were, were color. He saw through all of those phases of film. And Just to situate Psycho, this was his first film after um, North by Northwest, the Cary Grant kind of action wrong man uh, uh, semi-spy thriller, uh, which is a really wonderful picture. But I think I mentioned this because I think it's, it's really interesting how radically different this film is because that North by Northwest, massive production values, very, very elaborate sets and sequences the famous the uh, the crop dusting plane that goes you know goes and dives in to attack Cary Grant right like these big kind of Indiana Jones ask for for I guess a slightly more recent example um action sequences and here we have a very minimalist very low budget film so the numbers i saw reference on wikipedia from box office mojo said that this was actually made for eight hundred thousand dollars which even in 1960 was a pretty outrageously low uh film budget so so i actually i was gonna ask i eight hundred thousand dollars that you have in your notes here that's um the money of the time right uh that's correct right okay so that was considerably lower than his previous films. Again, by this point in his career, he was doing like very kind of grandiose pictures. Um, and this film also did gangbusters at the office. So apparently it grossed $50 million at the box office. Uh, that, again, has not been adjusted for inflation. Uh, I'm not sure what that would be today, but it would be a pretty crazy number. And so part of this was because he had an agreement with Universal, and I I believe I'm quoting this correctly. This is from the uh, kind of definitive book on this film, Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho by Stephen Ribello. He had an agreement with Universal about if he were able to make a film for less than $3 million, he would kind of have free reign, whatever he wanted to do with it. But part of this uh, agreement, he received a higher percentage of the profits, uh, which is a deal that that happens a lot today as well with uh, directors and stars is uh, negotiating your salary, allowing for uh, points on the general profits that the film makes, which can be much more lucrative if your film or uh, television show is successful. So that's just, a, you know, to kind of focus us in on like where Hitchcock was in his career at this point. I was wondering what other Hitchcock films have you seen? And kind of if you could give... Give us a sense of uh, what you liked or didn't like, your kind of general impression of him as a director. I sat down and wrote down all the movies of his I've seen. And this is in not chronological order, but Dial M for Murder, The Man Who Knew Too Much, both versions. The Birds, North by Northwest, Psycho, Rear Window, Strangers on a Train to Catch a Thief, and Vertigo. And I would say that I liked all of them, but probably none of them would make my 
top 10 in terms of movies as a whole, except maybe Vertigo. I, I'm i not sure what it is. Like, I... Uh, I think his movies are great, but they're maybe... I'm not sure. They're just not particular favorites for me. I, I always feel like on this podcast, I'm... Like, I found like I sound like such a snob because I'm always talking about here's this great lauded movie and I'm like meh, <laughs> but I'm really um, I'm really speaking just to my personal preferences. Just like with anything, just like with food, there can be some dish that's delicious, but it just is not the particular favorite for certain people. And I got to say that a lot of when I was thinking about what I really appreciate about Alfred Hitchcock movies, I always think about um, Grace Kelly because she has amazing wardrobes in so many of these films. <laughs> so I, I think uh, first off, I, I want to emphasize that like you were totally right. And I, I want to respect your personal relationship with the films. Um because that uh, I, I recently saw a video clip of Leonard Malton because uh, AFI was doing something about Citizen Kane. I think they were um, putting it up online or something. And so they had Leonard Malton come do like a 90 second YouTube video about it. And he said something they thought was really resonant. He said, like, please watch it, but don't force yourself to like it. Right. Like the experience is really important. Don't tell yourself that you have to like this because of because other people told you to, right? And I think that's really good advice for all of us because they're also um, prominent filmmakers and, and um, like, quote-unquote, important films that I, I can't get into. So it's important to emphasize that, but also to, you know, like, respect the craft and whatnot. So I think uh, I it might just be because I've been watching Hitchcock for so long. Like, I think this was... Hitchcock was the first... A director that I knew by name, uh, even before Spielberg, I remember uh, Hitchcock, and I—it's hard to explain, but like it, watching this, it had been uh, a few years, I think, since the last time I watched um, a Hitchcock movie, and it—it it feels like getting under a warm blanket. It feels so good. Uh, and it, it's almost painful to kind of look into the specific filmic techniques that he uses because I just like the the cumulative effect. It feels like a Hitchcock, especially like this period. This was in 1960, but like the 50s Hitchcock films have such a deliberate, similar style and, and form to them. So, yeah, I would say, like, I think they, I agree. I think they are great movies. And I think for me, they function on uh, more of an emotional level. I think that might be a piece of that maybe nostalgia as well. Moving right along, I thought we could talk a little bit about the stars of this film. So, as I had said previously, uh, Hitchcock made this for a very low budget and kind of wanted it that way. He actually said that he had grown tired of the, according to him, essentially the bloated salaries of stars that... Once you once you had signed a star, you were kind of on the hook. You were tied to them because there was so much money exchanged. And I think here we see a deliberate choice to get away from that, right? So Janet Lee uh, was a very big star at this point. I want to emphasize that. Uh, she had done Little Women, uh, the adaptation in 1949, which was uh, one of the top 10 box office films of that year. 
Uh, she was also in The Naked Spur, a very famous Jimmy Stewart, critically acclaimed Western, and the Orson Welles semi-noir drama, crime drama, uh, Touch of Evil. So she was really well-known to audiences, uh, very, very popular. I do want to mention also, for those of you who may not know, um, she was married to Tony Curtis for about 10 years, and uh, she is the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, which is interesting because she's in Psycho, and then Jamie Lee Curtis would go on to star in Halloween. So she was she was super well known, but this wasn't again going back to that low budget. This wasn't the equivalent of casting Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly together in a film, right? Like in Rear Window, which would have considerably driven up that budget. The other big star here is Anthony Perkins, who was Oscar nominated for, I believe it was his second film called The Friendly Persuasion from 1956. Uh, which starred Gary Cooper. Uh, he got his start on Broadway, and he would kind of continue to do Broadway uh, performance throughout his career. But as we kind of all know, Psycho would become the role that that like defined him as a performer and an artist. He is most well-known for this. So I was wondering, Monica, what you thought about these two are kind of stars uh i say kind of because janet lee only makes it about 40 minutes into the movie what do you think about them and and were there other performances that you thought were were particularly strong or or weak i thought both uh janet lee and anthony perkins were really good they were the i mean they were kind of the main characters they were the ones who stuck out to me the most also i, I don't know the actor's name but that cop oh man <laughs> The the one who pulls her over. Yeah, uh, yeah. that well, maybe it's again like twenty twenty brain, but I was like, oh, because they have that close up on him. You can see every pore on his face. Um, he was good. Uh, I don't think that's twenty twenty brain because, and it, it's hard. I think there are different versions of this story, but one story that's floating been floating around about Hitchcock for a long time is that when he was a little boy, he like misbehaved or something, and so as punishment, his father took him to the police station and had the policeman like stick him in a holding cell for you know five minutes or whatever and brought him out. And that um, that experience was so traumatizing. Hitchcock developed like a lifelong fear of uh, the police. I don't. I think that's very much encoded into the film. So again, I think it's kind of interesting to talk about these performances because, again, aside from Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins, there isn't a whole lot of name recognition here. Anthony Perkins is recognized for this particular film, uh, so it's a little bit more difficult to talk about them because we talk about the actors here because we don't necessarily have a lot of context for their work. Uh, I did want to say I was really impressed by John Gavin, um, who plays uh, Sam Loomis, the man who's having the affair with Janet Lee's character with uh, Marion Crane. I thought he was really great. I was really impressed with the opening scene of the two of them in the hotel room. I thought those performances were incredible. And I also thought that uh, Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins's back and forth in the parlor was beyond brilliant. Like really this, I, I think this viewing, that was the scene that stood out to me the most. Um, not just because of the, the like really 
the really blunt but effective framing of Anthony Perkins speaking to her. And we have, you know, two is left in the background as a taxidermied. Um, I believe it's a hot, either a hawk or an owl, a predator. And he's, you know, leaning over speaking to her, right? Not, not terribly subtle, but very, you know, very creepy, really, really gets at you, or at least it got at me. And I think that's, that's this wonderful moment where the film goes from being, a standard, I don't want to say standard Hitchcock plot, but a more traditional Hitchcock plot, right? Like the heroine who is put upon because she wants to get married, but she can't get married and she sees the opportunity to get married by stealing money from this man who was uh, uh, really crude. The customer, the real estate customer she steals this money from uh, is hitting on her in this really, really crude, pretty vile way. So we see her built up as as this uh, immensely empathetic character. And we see her journey, again, like with the money, the stressful drive and everything. And the the hotel parlor, this conversation is where the film starts to turn its gears. And like, it's not a kind of like police procedural semi-thriller, right? It becomes like a psychological horror. And I think a lot of that is due to their performances in this conversation at that moment. So I, I suggest anyone who who is interested in watching this again, uh, definitely watch that clip kind of uh, uh, on its own. I think it's worth it. I thought it was interesting because I here's the thing. I've always had a fear of taxidermied animals. Like really, truly, they scare me to death. I remember being at, I think it was one of the Smithsonian museums, and they have this enormous hall full of taxidermied animals, taxidermied wildlife. Um, and I was alone at the museum, and I, I love museums, and I think I love to just spend hours and be learn all this stuff. And I couldn't go in there because it was so scary. <laughs> and I find that I find them scary even when I'm around other people. They, there's just something so creepy. I was interested to see that. Even, like, in 1960, people kind of thought the same way. Like, okay, it's an acceptable hobby, but also, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is um, something's, something's up. <laughs> oh, for sure. That that withering um, when Janet Lee was like, well, every man needs a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask also a question, just a plot clarification? Uh, sure. I kind of didn't understand why Marion and Sam can't be together. So he, Sam's already divorced. Marion's not married to anybody. Why is their affair a secret? So Sam says it's primarily because he can't really, he says something about having his father's debts and then also his alimony. And so I, I think the big conflict there or at least what he says is a big conflict uh is that like he needs you know kind of the i need an i need to know i can like take care of my wife type thing right like that kind of that period of like i have to be the man and have the money and like clear my debts and so i think a lot of it was kind of the the sense of humiliation that he would get because he has that line about like, oh, we could get married and you could, you know, lick the envelopes on my alimony um, checks or whatever. So I think that's that's really the motivator there. 
Okay, so just kind of more, like, even though he's divorced, he kind of has to, what is it, tie up his loose ends before it'll look appropriate for him to remarry somebody else. Right. This is just me doing some guesswork, but I think it's also plausible that maybe he never really intended to marry her because it it's kind of, again, kind of just scandalous. Like, what is she doing with this divorcee? And that's why they're, like, hiding out and meeting in, in kind of secret locations. So he might, it might be more that he's not interested in, like, the scrutiny that would bring along, but I'm not really sure. So just to talk about this film in the context of our theme of the month, censorship, we had referenced it uh, in our previous episode, The Man with the Golden Arm, how by this point, the 50s and the 60s, the uh, motion picture production code was beginning to grow increasingly frail. Uh, for a series of kind of business reasons and competition from uh, foreign film, primarily European films. Uh, and so at this point in 1960, we're about eight years away from the official the official end of the MPPC. Uh, so this was kind of another significant nail in that coffin. There was a lot of back and forth between Hitchcock and the censors on this film, as you might imagine. One of the more controversial scenes was the shower scene. But from what I read, it doesn't appear that there was any real controversy over the specific violence, the stabbing, and more of it revolved around Censors claiming that they could see one of Janet Lee's breasts. And so as the story goes, Hitchcock submitted it. And then some of the censors on this board said that they could see her breast. Other censors said that they couldn't. He took the film reel back, sat on it for a little bit, and then resubmitted the exact same footage claiming he had changed it. And suddenly all the censors kind of switched their positions, right? So some of the ones who said they couldn't see her breast now said they could. The ones who said they could now couldn't. So there was a lot of this kind of bizarre back and forth. There was also, they were also very displeased with the opening scene of Janet Lee and, or pardon, uh, Marion Crane and Sam Loomis in the motel room. And Hitchcock had had offered as kind of this agreement to reshoot that with the censors on set, and the censors never actually showed up, so they just wound up keeping it in the film. So another scene that the censors took great issue with uh, was a sequence in which Janet Lee takes uh, the paper in which she had written down kind of the sum total of the money she had stolen and subtracted uh, the amount of money she had paid in order to switch cars on her way to the motel. She had traded in her car and had to pay $700 to get a, a new used vehicle. Um, and so she tears this piece of this piece of incriminating paper up and uh, flushes it down the toilet. And the censors were actually pretty displeased with this because apparently that was that was really taboo. Like toilets weren't really seen that often in these <laughs> films, and I I don't it it's just it strikes me as so odd in a film where a woman is stabbed to death in a shower, and the censors were like she's flushing paper down the toilet. This is uh, <laughs> lewd. <laughs> 
One interesting thing in doing the research, I wasn't able to find a lot of information. So I kind of got the impression that Hitchcock was able to release this with a seal of approval with almost no edits uh, other than the, um, the stand-in for Janet Lee, who uh, uh, played played the character as the dead body. At one point, you can see her bare buttocks, and apparently uh, some of those frames were, were cut to remove that. Uh, so I got the impression that that was the only change that was made. But recently to this recording, so we are recording on July 20, uh, 21st, on July 14th, Slash Film put out an article saying that there's going to be a new Hitchcock box set that's advertised as having the full uncut film, including footage that like people haven't seen before. And this article seemed uh, similarly confused about what that footage might be. Uh, so I don't, I guess, uh, by the time you're hearing this back, that box set might already be out and you may know, but. Oh, I was just going to jump in and say it's, this is 2020, by the way. Oh, pardon. Right. Worst year ever, 2020. (laughs) (laughs) If you survived into like 2030 or something. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Go find that box set. (laughs) If there are still boxes in your time. (laughs) (laughs) Just a a final moment, I thought I would mention uh, film critic David Thompson wrote a book called The Moment of Psycho, How Alfred Hitchcock Taught America to Love Murder. Uh, Unfortunately, I was not able to get my hands on this book before recording. But from my understanding from from kind of other material, uh, his claim was essentially that Psycho marked a drastic shift uh, in American culture in favor of kind of like violence and depictions of sexuality that weren't allowed before. And his, his big quote on this was the orgy had arrived. Uh, His take on this is kind of debated, but I think it's, it's a fair point that this signaled a, a pretty drastic change in what was allowed to be depicted in Hollywood films. So I just wanted to go back for one second to the relatively low budget of this film. Uh, As I had mentioned earlier, compared to something like North by Northwest, this is a very kind of down and dirty, like gritty film. And part of the way that Hitchcock was able to save money was that he used a lot of the same uh, crew members who worked on his uh, super popular show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, so the crew that shot this was mostly accustomed to working in television and, again, in particular, on that anthology series. And so as a result, their uh, their costs were significantly lower. And we can see something similar more recently in the uh, the kind of minor box office but cult hit film uh, The Mist which was directed by Frank Darabont and came out in 2007. And similarly, uh, I believe he actually had a lower budget because he couldn't really negotiate for something bigger. Um, But in order to save money, he hired uh, the crew that shot the television show, The Shield. And I know that part of the cost savings with that was they were accustomed to having to get out a lot of material in a short amount of time because you know, even a short, like a 10 episode prestige television show, that's, you know, 10 hours of, um, 
of film to begin with to for the finished product and if you're shooting like a 10 to 1 ratio we're talking about filming 100 hours every single year which is a considerable amount of work uh so i just wanted to mention that to say that that's um that's a cost cutting technique that's been used on occasion and uh i thought that was pretty interesting so I'd like to go right into the film itself and talk about, as we had mentioned earlier, kind of the most memorable aspect of this film, which is its score. So the score was written by Bernard Herrmann, uh, who has a tremendous amount of uh, work under his belt. I suppose most uh, reputably he scored this film, but he did also work on Citizen Kane, uh, for which I, I think he was nominated for an Oscar uh, and he did also have a, a relationship with Hitchcock and worked with him on several of his films, including Vertigo and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, uh, the Man Who Knew Too Much, that would be the uh, 1950s version. So there are a lot of different stories about kind of how the music uh, more or less came to be within the film. The common version is that Hitchcock uh, wanted kind of less music than ultimately wound up in the film. So he apparently didn't want any music during the uh, the shower sequence uh, in which Marion Crane is murdered and was uh, only convinced to add it by Bernard Herrmann uh, later during, um, during production uh, because apparently Bernard Herrmann was on set pretty frequently, which is kind of a ra rarity. This gets, uh, I, I believe I mentioned this uh, once or twice in the show before, but a lot of times the sound department gets pretty pretty much ignored until the post-production phase of a film, just because we we all tend to think of movies as being uh, visual mediums and and the the sound element is is often kind of forgotten uh, very easily. So I think it's really interesting that Herman was on set for this. That being said, this specific claim is kind of controversial. I know the screenwriter on the film, Joseph Stefano, he kind of disputes it and argues that uh, Hitchcock was actually in favor of, of adding more music. He didn't have to be uh, convinced or, or influenced by Herman to do that. But anyway, there. I, either way, it seems like there was some tension over this. So Monica, I was wondering what you think of the score both in in just your general opinion of it uh but also like w do you see any elements of this in f uh more modern film or television as i've said many times before on this podcast i don't have a good set of vocabulary to talk about music but to me the music in this feels and I've seen a lot of people characterize this movie as a whole, as even though it's technically within the span of the golden age of Hollywood, it really feels like a newer movie. And I think that's really true about the music. And as I said right at the top, the score in this movie, we we hear it so much in parody and all these other places. And I, when I think of, you know, quote-unquote, scary movie music, I think of two two different scores. I think of Psycho and I think of Jaws. So I'm glad you bring up Jaws uh, because that's another another score. I guess these kind of these two scores, Jaws and Psycho, are the most memorable scores in, in horror film history and kind of at the top and easily the top 10 in, in all of film history. Uh, and kind of an interesting tidbit, later on, Hitchcock would actually hire... 
uh, John Williams to score his final film, Family Plot. And also, I, I think that the scores in, in Hitchcock films are always very distinctive. So uh, he certainly knew kind of like who, what talent to pick out. Uh, and I think Bernard Herrmann, obviously working on Citizen Kane, had a really tremendous, interesting output. One thing I wanted to mention uh, for me personally in this viewing of the film, uh, what struck me the most was... First of all, after I finished the movie, I've been listening to the soundtrack like over and over and over. Uh, it's great. And how much it reminded me of some of like Danny Elfman's work on Tim Burton films. Like it, it's a little it's a little more like on the edge of its seat. It's a little more tense. But I think some of the voicing reminds me of um, Danny Elfman. And also I was hearing a lot of Howard Shore in it uh, in this viewing kind of with the the grand like some parts of the psycho score have have these kind of kind of grand uh melodic choices and then you have the again the shower scene and the the kind of stinging the eh, eh, the <laughs> classic noise we all know it reminded me a little bit of Howard Shore's work particularly uh kind of the gap between his uh, composition on on kind of a lot of the parts of uh, the Shire in Lord of the Rings and and some other elements of that film, and then when we get to Shelob, uh, the Spider in Return of the King, he adopts, if memory serves, he adopts kind of a similar like staccato stinging voice. Um, so I think this really the the score has really resonated uh, throughout popular film. I hadn't thought about that, but the staccato-ness of it is something that we so strongly associate with horror, but that doesn't, it's not, you don't necessarily have to use it to convey a sense of dread. All right, folks, that does it for the first part of our episode on Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Mayday Matinee, Facebook and Instagram at Maybe Today Matinee. You can shoot us an email. We're Maybe Today Matinee at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Patreon, Maybe Today Matinee. If you would like to contribute and help support the show, we are eternally grateful. As I said at the front, the second part of our episode on Hitchcock Psycho should be available in your feed now if you want to go ahead and listen to it. All right, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Wow.